This is DTC Growth Hacking with Rob McGray. Brought to you by Field Test. Advertising simplified. And this is DTC Growth Hacking presented by Field Test, a podcast dedicated to the way we speak, text, email, internet, shop, and market to one another, which pretty much covers the majority of interactions that I have every day and maybe you as well. Today, we're really excited to have Colin Godby on the podcast. I met Colin back in 2015 as he was joining the company that uh, I was working at, a little company called Sphero. And from Boulder, Colorado. And he was coming actually from a company that I had just previously worked at, which was Disney, um, where Colin was an Imagineer. Um, by the way, we should talk about it at some point. They're moving the Imagineers to Florida. Crazy. It's yeah, crazy. I heard that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the big question to answer it up front is why should you care what Colin has to say. Well, let me tell you, Colin is one of the most thoughtful, kind, and naturally empathetic product guys that I know. He's helped launch some tremendous products, and he's currently working on something that is potentially incredibly transformative. And I don't usually say that, but I'm and I don't know how much he's going to get into it, but it is super cool. Basically, I can almost guarantee if you stay and you listen, you're going to walk away feeling a little bit better and a little bit smarter after hearing what Colin has to say. Colin, how are you? Rob, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Did you like that intro? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Pretty flattering. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all true. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, we met back uh, in 2015, which you know, doesn't feel like a long time ago. But then when I say it, I'm like, oh, my God, it's like six years. Um, we, we had a chance to collaborate. Um, you know, I, I remember um, being impressed with with your professionalism and your dedication and all the time that you had to go to China um, <laughs> which I, which I thought was 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 a big was a big deal um, I know that after I left and after you left you went over to Glowforge and for those of you who don't know Glowforge I believe had the largest crowdfunding campaign of a product ever of all time infinity and Colin was working on that product and now he's with Upco Bikes and you know for me I just I look at this and I just think innovator um, product guy knows consumers knows what they want knows how to make it um, Colin big takeaway all this experience how do you sum it up yeah you know I've always liked solving problems and working on physical things throughout my life. So starting with bicycles and musical instruments, um, I just really loved that visceral piece of the experience. But as I kind of went into my career, I started to see that there were some themes around connected technology and how integrating the software aspect of the experience into really compelling hardware could make things better. And so when we met at Sphero, I think that that company was in a really interesting place, which was starting to add the connected technology strategies into kind of entertainment, you know, toy robotic type products for consumers, right? Um, yeah. And so as I started to kind of build that toolkit, I really started to see, you know, there's so many other places that I could build, bring this to the table. So Glowforge was a really interesting build on top of that around um, really compelling hardware that lets 
people make things, right? I love the idea of democratizing making. And then finally, moving on to Upco is sort of a similar premise, but in this case, it was utility vehicles and the electrification of the things that help us move throughout the world and how bringing a fully connected stack of technology can make that even better. So really it's kind of, it's a little bit of a, a futurist technologist lens about how to make really awesome products that make people's lives better. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I, I love that. I, I, I feel it's, it's such an important thing. And we've been having a lot of conversations, you know, with the podcast, but, but just in general with, with friends and stuff about this idea that, um, are we doing something good? Hmm. And we, we all dedicate so much of our lives to our careers. And, and for those of us who, who are in tech or, or in the arts or just, you know, this, the, the traditional creator role, um, you know, I feel like the pandemic has really brought this new lens to all of us, which is, you know, am I doing something for good? And I've, I've gone so far as to, to say myself, although I don't think it's original, um, so I'm not claiming it, but that mm-hmm. the good has become the new cool. Mm-hmm. And, and as you, as you describe your journey and as you describe the, the way that you want to use technology um, to create these experiences. I wonder how how good fits in there. Um, it, as, as, you know, as, where does it sit at the table? Um, and, and that's a question I've been asking everybody. So I'm interested to hear, you know, based on your experience. And I love that, you know, um, democracy, democratization of, of, of making and it, it, it's, it's powerful. But like, where, how do you how do you deal with yourself and your conscious and and how does that all fit together these days? Yeah, you know it is a it is a really interesting kind of journey. I can remember actually being pretty early in my career and being more interested in the types of problems that are being solved, like if they were complex or hard ones that other people hadn't solved, or what kind of team are we pulling together, and not really thinking as much about you know the impact or the end use of the product, right? So. Early in my days, I worked on a little bit of kind of defense industry, military vehicle, concept cars, really exciting kind of technology stuff and engineering. And then I moved on to Skull Candy doing headphones. Another really interesting set of problems for me to solve in mass production and, and developing my supply chain chops in China. But in hindsight, both of those things didn't really feed any sort of um, kind of value system around making the world a better place. And so when I actually moved on from Skull Candy and went to Imagineering, I actually remember in the onboarding, they said, you know, our vision is to make a, the world a better place by bringing joy into everyone's lives. And that was sort of the first time it really kind of resonated for me. It's like, you know what? I get that and I really like that idea. Like, well, it's a little bit of a stretch in some way to say like, hey, we're building theme parks and we're making the world a better place place. I do think those moments of joy and and enjoyment really do make people happier and therefore hopefully the people around them happier and it's sort of a cascading effect. So that was kind of the moment it really started. And then from there on, it kind of created this additional checkbox for me when evaluating opportunities was, you know, is this in some way making the world better or is this in some way building experiences that are 
unique and exciting and making people happy, right? And so that's actually what really got me excited about Sphero is kind of a combination of all of my skills, you know, a little bit of kind of the Disney entertainment flair mm -hmm. and a little bit of the consumer product and a little bit of the technology, right? Um, but it was building products that could help people learn how to code, you know, intro to robotics essentially, but also like these really magical um, experiences with the, uh, you know, as we came to realize BB-8, a very powerful character in the Star Wars, um, you know, storyline. Um, and the way that we were able to make a robot move resonated, right? So from there on out, it, it definitely became a thing for me to think about. And I've been pretty intentional about selecting these roles. And, and I really do feel like it's kind of culminated for me at UBCO with something that lets me pour everything that I've got problem solving, you know, leadership, um, into something that I do actually think will help make the world a better place, solve some of the biggest problems and challenges around, you know, climate change and, um, either even consumer behavior. Um, I developed a, a, a really simple met like kind of framework in thinking about roles after taking this is like, if you take your product to the nth degree, everyone in the world has one of these things or uses this thing. Is it a better place? You know, like, and, and in hindsight, I could apply that and be like, you know what? Like, maybe I didn't want all of these, every single person in the world to have one of these or, you know, that sort of thing. But now I feel comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I love, I love that you're in a place where you can have those conversations with yourself and, and you can acknowledge the importance, but also, um, you know, validate what you're doing as being important and and knowing that to use your own words that yeah if everybody had one of these it would be better you know um i i, I remember you know i i had never worked on a physical product until until actually when i went to go spend time in in boulder with the sphero company and like it was very eye-opening and i i remember thinking like this is there's a sacrifice, right? There's a trade, like, you know, we're creating something and we're doing our best. And, and by the way, like the, the team at Sphero was, was incredible. Like the amount of yeah. talent, like we had so much talent um, yeah. in one building and then, you know, remote folks as well. But we were trying so hard to do something so special, but there was always that feeling like, well, yeah, but who's making these and what's going to happen when people are done playing with them, you know, because we just, you know, they have batteries and we all have all this plastic and they're not necessarily good for much else. I mean, they wouldn't make like a good baseball. Right. I think we just shatter. It's like we, we didn't make it multi-purpose. It's like it's good for really one thing. And then and then it's done. And uh, yeah. and, and look, I wouldn't change what the, the great work. But I'd like to think that if 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 we were in the same position today with the same folks that we would sit, take a step back and say, hey, OK, but let's ask ourselves those questions, you know. And so if, if we could dive right in and talk a little bit about, you know, what UBCO is doing and, and the methodology and, and you know, essentially the mission, because I think that that's the big thing when, when we spoke earlier is like the mission that you guys are on. And I don't I don't know what I can and cannot talk about. So I'm going to let you kind of guide. But, you know, this it, it felt important. It felt relevant and it felt 
to use my own word from my own word from earlier, transformative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it is funny. In hindsight, I, I actually even in the moment at Sphero had similar sensations, which is like, you know, at a at a certain point in 2015, 2016 you know, we're looking at the numbers and we're producing hundreds of thousands of units a month. Right. Um, and I try to do a visualization of like, what would it look like if I stacked all of these boxes, you know, in one place is, I think it's the size of the empire state bill, you know, like something crazy. Yeah. Like that, right. Um, I mean, yeah, just those boxes alone, <laughs> yeah. not even the device, the boxes and, and I'll take blame for some of that, but Which, I, and the, remember the foam we had in the box? Yeah. Like, I don't know, is that foam biodegradable or is it around for, you know, infinity? Yeah. I don't know. Not, not ideal on the foam. That being said, um, that is one benefit of, producing really high quality packaging is you end up finding consumers do use them for other things, right? Like storing little tchotchkes in your desk or whatever, um, or, you know, dog toys and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a really delicate balance, right? Like you want to scale this impact or this experience, especially if you believe it's a really good, strong, delightful experience to as many people as possible. Right. And so that's where that kind of metric comes through is like, is it actually a good thing if you do that though? Right. And, and I think, you know, probably, probably not ideal when it comes ideal when it comes to consumer toys, products that we build more and more of these things. Right. And so that's where kind of multi-use multifunctional objects come into play. Like I really love, um, thinking about like how Alton Brown talks about kitchen tools and like, he has like almost a hatred for unit tools, I think is what he calls them. Like, you know, this is the special tool that's only for coring pineapples, right? And it sits in your, it, you know, it's a bit of plastic sits in your, um, drawer for, you know, 364 days out of the year until the one day you buy yeah. that pineapple. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, and then you forget, and then you forget, you forget you even have it. Yeah, right? exactly. You so then it. you never use it. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so Glowforge, I think, actually did that quite well in that it was a, is a tool made for um, building all sorts of things all across, whether it's decorations, objects you use every day, gifts, like it really spanned. And it really couldn't be something you use daily. Um, and so that, that was a piece that really um, had me thinking, like, this is, this is awesome. How else can you do this? And so when I joined Upco, one of the big reasons was because I saw that um, promise there. And, and really what we're doing at Upco is right now we make a two wheel drive utility vehicle. It's essentially a electric moped. Um, and it's, but it's designed for use on and off road and to satisfy a bunch of different use cases. So whether it's kind of utility for agriculture or tourism, recreational, you know, um, exploration or commuting around your town, um, or even for food delivery, you know, we've developed a vehicle that can be used for a bunch of different things, right? And so already, like, you have the ability to scale across a, um, a bunch of different uses, and therefore you get really big benefits and economies of scale and leveraging the pieces that you've developed from, you know, multiple endpoints. But then we're adding on a layer of kind of software connectivity and using that to start to collect a bunch of data on bike usage, as well as create um, a service for potential owners so that they don't actually have to shell out all of the money up front. And what that does is it starts to allow for the benefits of these sorts of clean vehicles to be used 
by more people for more use cases. So enterprises that want to launch a fleet of electric vehicles, but can't necessarily justify the capital expense or place their, you know, aging, um, you know, uh, high maintenance sort of need uh, internal combustion fleet can now start to think about chipping away as needed and starting to acquire these bikes on a subscription, right? The same goes for an end user. Like they have um, the ability to make that switch or even add the capability to bring on a vehicle like this into their household, um, even potentially to drive a new kind of side gig, let's say delivering for, you know, Uber Eats or Deliveroo or something like that. Um, by leveraging the vehicle that we're creating. And ultimately the big picture for me is how do we create a platform that is extensible across a bunch of different vehicles and a bunch of different use cases that basically lowers the friction of just getting good work done or having great experiences, right? So you kind of remove the reason or the justification to have to take this leap into electrification, right? And now you just actually have a product that stands alone for being amazing, right? And enables people yeah. to do great things. And so, you know, our, our motto essentially is power your purpose. Like everyone has a different purpose. We want to provide the capabilities for you to kind of power that. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, um, there's so much in what you just said. I, I mean, I, I thought I had a couple of different thoughts. I thought about um, and maybe you guys have too, clear, probably clearly have. But remember when like the scooter craze first started and everybody was like riding birds and limes and who, who knows who else? Um, I can't remember all the companies, but I remember talking to somebody in like uh, who worked for the city of L.A. And we we're talking. I kept on asking, like, can you get the data? Because I swear this data would be so valuable. You would know traffic patterns of how people are moving around, which you've never had before. You know, you've never had it to that that precision. And it could help inform like where the police should be or like where you need a bigger like bridge or just really understanding where people go and how they use the infrastructure that's in place. And so as you talk about this data gathering and, you know, I, I immediately, it comes back to me, this, this concept of like, you know, for the good of all of us and that this, this data sharing that, you know, that I know why it freaks everybody out, um, but can be so valuable, mm -hmm. uh, especially at scale. You know, when you start to think of if everyone was on a bird in the city, you kind of know like how that city worked and you could make decisions as a city planner, et cetera, based on that. And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about how the data will inform the product? Yeah, there's there's quite a few threads in there um, that I'm excited to talk about, but I want to raise a, a story, see if you remember do you remember at Disney when they're working on the Magic Band program, right? And they're in R&D and, and they're rolling it out to um, Orlando. And there's sort of some internal kind of rumblings around like, is it right for us to collect all this data? Like, we're essentially going to know when guests go into bathrooms and stuff, right? And it ultimately came down to there is responsibility in how you utilize this data. Obviously, privacy and those sorts of things are, are quite important and, and actually drive some of my own kind of consumer choices. But if ultimately that data can be used to make the experience or the world a better place, it has amazing value, right? Like, so in the case for Disney, having that data about 
when customers go to the restroom or where you know they should be placed with respect to food installations or even mm -hmm. ride lines durations they can actually optimize that to make sure that the guest is getting the best experience you're not waiting for the bathroom or like you're fueled up when you need to be in the middle of your park visit and all these sorts of things right so i think the same thing can be used in the mobility space and that's kind of the the promise around mobility as a service is by connecting all of these devices, we can collect super rich data about the usage of them. Um, so whether that's for like traffic patterns or in the enterprise context, how to deploy your fleet of vehicles most effectively to cover your territory and make the most deliveries in an hour, or even for us about how the individual battery packs are aging on our vehicles and how ultimately we can then design those battery packs to both last longer, but also how we handle those battery packs at end of life, right? So one of the key elements for our kind of subscription model is actually we become stewards of the product from end to end, right? So at the end of the day, when it's you're done with this product or it's reached its sort of valuable life as a vehicle, can we repurpose the materials for other uses. So whether that's taking the battery pack and putting it into a lower um, intensity use case, or maybe even setting up the components for grid storage, having that availability of data will help us understand exactly how to use it, both safely, but also for the best ultimate life, which as we know, like a key piece of recycle, reduce, and reuse is reduce, right? Like reduce your consumption. Yeah. And a big piece of that is making something that lasts a really long time. You know, I, my dad is a, is a scientist slash engineer. And I think the last, the time before the last time I was visiting him, um, he came out with these really strange devices and he gave one to everybody. And it was essentially a, a USB charger that you could charge up your phone. And what he had done was he, he has, I don't know, like 50 laptops for some reason, but the batteries were, when they go bad, what, and the computer says the battery's bad, he said, he found out it wasn't, it wasn't really bad. So what he did is he ripped apart all these batteries, ripped the actual batteries out and created all these like little USB chargers that he gives out to whoever wants one and flashlights and et cetera. He's basically making devices out of batteries. Mm -hmm. And now, now granted, he's like an electrical engineer, so he's qualified to do this. So I'm not recommending we all start ripping apart <laughs> batteries. It's actually kind of dangerous. Um, but, but it made me wonder because I've been so critical, uh, you know, with, with a company like Apple, um, you know, not just for the forced upgrades, but like the, the lack of battery replacement is, mm -hmm. is infuriating. And yeah. it's only like what the, the air tags that finally, like you can just put a battery in this thing, mm -hmm. um, like that you can buy at a store, which means that in theory, it's got no moving parts. The air tag should last a really long time, mm -hmm. but why aren't the other devices that way? And, you know, and it's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you guys are thinking about the fact that, you know, what, what do we do with this stuff when, when it, no longer serves this specific purpose, um, but it could serve others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting, like there's a variety of technical reasons, right? And kind of as we go back to um, uh, Sphero, like we're seal sealing up, like part of the experience is actually sealing up uh, 
the device so that it can go underwater, getting ease in all these different um, environments, right? And so by the nature of the experience, we sort of seal the fate of the battery being trapped inside. And I think you know, people like Apple probably have similar justifications for why they made that decision, right? Like, well, we could maximize the structure if we integrate the battery into this, or like we could actually fit a slightly larger battery by making it so it's not removable. But at the end of the day, like it's just how your calculus is being done, right? Like, so if the sustainability aspect or the reuse and repurposing of those ingredients are an important piece of the equation, you will design for that outcome, right? And we have to acknowledge that like, there's a significant amount of um, resource and um, kind of you know labor going into mining these materials, extracting them, turning them into products, right? Like, let's not forget there is an impact, there is a footprint of mm-hmm. new, any new product. And so stretching that off across you know multiple life cycles is one of the best ways to ultimately reduce that, uh, the magnitude of the impact that you're having. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing also, a lot of these batteries, the way that they're kind of architected require cell balancing, especially in a laptop, right? So if any single cell kind of goes out of balance, then it sort of degrades the whole rating for the pack. Um, and so this is an interesting part around, uh, the ability to, uh, sort of decompose or the ability to deconstruct a battery pack is those individual cells, many of them are still actually quite performant or like quite right. have quite good life left. So if you can actually do that as your dad did, you can repurpose them for still like a, a great second life. Um, and so I think that's actually kind of the future of where um, electric vehicles and, and kind of electric battery powered products are going in general is, you know, we can't keep consuming batteries as a typical consumable, you know, our, our tendencies and practices do need to change. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I'm excited to be helping deliver products that really embody that. Yeah. Did, did you watch uh, Watchmen on HBO, the, the, the series? And uh, one, one of the things I loved about that, and, and I, I think that the creators are, are trying to manifest uh, maybe a future that we're not we weren't 100% sure about, but I think we're getting closer every day. We're in that they had all these kind of classic cars, but everything was converted. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you caught this. Everything was converted to electric. Mm-hmm. And it was very similar to say like Interstellar where, you know, um, you know, Murph had the big, the big truck, but it was clearly electric, mm-hmm. but it had like the, the nuance and, and the kind of classic touches of, of, of something that we're familiar with. Right. And so yeah. you can kind of see in in sci-fi, you know, especially things that are like just slightly out of reach or in a different dimension than ours or, you know, however you want to look at it, where, you know, we're getting closer and closer and closer to like, you know, either destroying the planet and or, um, you know, EVs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I can't think of a there's there's a few areas of industry that I that I think are super exciting and anything attached to electric vehicles is like is it's probably at the top right now because we know it's going to happen in the next you know 10 years or so we still haven't seen that big leap yet i think it's been very gradual like we saw like it started then you know somebody killed the electric car and then you know and then tesla brought it back and made it cool and now volkswagen is only going to make electric cars and 
now all of a sudden, you know, the F-150 is, mm-hmm. is coming out electric. And, I, and we talked about this. And I think that's probably the pinnacle where when that comes out, like now all of a sudden it's going to there's going to be mass acceptance Mm-hmm. And we're going to finally see the de- the decline of alternatives to EVs. And so and it's not just, you know, it's not just going to be cars and trucks. You know, it's what else is it going to be? Clearly, yeah. you know, two wheel vehicles. But I'm wondering, like, when are we going to get to like, you know, I, I just think about I just think about like these these people with jets and, and how, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, a, you know, I'm a pilot. I know how much fuel that you burn. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fuel. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, you know, the interesting thing that I don't think it's spoken about a lot is electric machines are inherently a minimum of two times, if not three and a half times more efficient than their equivalent internal combustion machine, right? And so that in and of itself tells you um, where we need to go. It's all about how we are consuming and optimizing the, the, that consumption based on the resources that we have. And I'm not going to say like, Hey, you know, we're 100% constrained and we're going to run out of, of certain resources by a certain, certain day. The reality though, is I do believe we have to be good stewards of what we have. And it just makes complete sense to operate in the most efficient means possible. Right. And so the challenge for EVs now, that's sort of known, right, in the engineering and te- technological space. But there's been cost trade-offs with how you store enough energy in the battery pack. There's been performance trade-offs previously, um, and the weight and how you package these things. Um, and then there's even been some trade-offs around, you know, the um, the the materials that go into battery packs and whatnot. But the beautiful thing is now that we're starting to develop momentum more and more investment and technological advancement is happening in this space, solving those problems so that we can sort of unleash this um, efficiency gain on the rest of the world. Like in a similar way, this this is um, uh, one of my favorite kind of technologies is the LED light, right? So the LED light in the span of like one decade has gone from, you know, super low adoption rates to basically being the only type of light bulb sold today. And it's not because anyone like was giving money away to buy these things. In fact, they actually were for premium, but they're so much more efficient. They lasted so much longer with less maintenance that it just made total sense. Right. And so I actually think we're headed to that future pretty rapidly in EVs. The, the rate of advancement, we're solving those hard key problems around cost performance packaging, um, even the source of materials to where in the next decade, we're going to be able to feel amazing about those products and then get all of the benefits of increased performance, um, quiet, uh, efficiency, right? Like all of these things are basically going to come for free because the rest of it just makes it a for sure thing. And to your point, I think F-150 is sort of the signal of that turning point. We've sort of reached the ability to deliver a very compelling product that meets or exceeds every performance metric of the existing truck in a way that is not, uh, uh, you know, um, an affront to some consumer tastes, right? They're going to enjoy this thing in a, a, a multitude of ways. And guess what? It is so much better for the world, right? And I think this is what's really exciting about the, the day and age we're living is, 
to your point, that's coming across so many different sectors. I actually have a, a couple friends that work at a company and they're developing smart motor technology for infrastructure. So think about like the fans that drive heating and cooling systems in factories. Their product is able to show 20% improvement or 30% improvement in efficiency over the current motors. Oh my God, like scaled worldwide, that is billions and billions of dollars in energy consumption that will be saved, right? Um, So that's, I think this is what we have to look forward to is um, it's really exciting times. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And, And like I said, like you're, you're there. You, um, I'm, I'm, I think I might be jealous uh, that you get to work on this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the product um, at, at Upco, the, the bike itself? Yeah. Yeah. So what's really cool about Upco is it was very much like how we run the business, consumer centric, basically using design thinking principles. But there was a clear need in New Zealand where the company is from. Uh, to develop a vehicle that was quite capable off-road in a variety of sort of demanding terrains uh, for agriculture and other kind of job site usage, right? And so the the bike was developed by a couple of fellows named Daryl and Ant, and they pieced together some of the existing equipment for pedal electric bikes because they had a company in that space that would allow them to build a two-wheel drive off-road, highly capable off-road sort of moped class vehicle that could help all of the farmers get to the furthest reaches of their land in a quiet and mm-hmm. kind of sustainable way. And once they pieced that thing together, it kind of resonated with the, the local kind of market down there. And, and not only were they able to kind of get places they didn't, um, weren't able to get previously, it was so much more lightweight easy to charge. You know, one of the beautiful thing about electric vehicles is, you know, 40% or more reduction in moving parts. So the maintenance is significantly reduced. Um, and so it really hit it off, um, down there in New Zealand. And it became quite clear that this model for sort of a Swiss army knife of vehicle could be applied more globally. So we worked to develop a a road legal version. So now there's off and on road using for commuting. It's very structural, you know, very lightweight, center of gravity is quite low. Um, it's approachable for, you know, people that are afraid of riding normal motorcycles because they're, you know, loud or hard to handle or they feel very heavy and foreign. Like our bike is the opposite of that. Like anyone can jump on and feel comfortable zipping around their neighborhood or on the, the forest road and actually kind of um, get these experiences that, you know, maybe you didn't think possible. Um, probably the best uh, analogy for the type of class of vehicle would be like the old Honda Trail 90 or CT90 or Mm -hmm. CT110. You know, Honda sold millions of these things over, you know, decades. They're just workhorse bikes. They could kind of go anywhere. Anyone could jump on them. You know, this thing wouldn't get you to the top of the mountain fastest, right? Like there's super dedicated kind of performance vehicles for that. But it just was the the trusty, you know, workhorse that was there for you whenever you need it. So that's kind of what Upco is. Um, But what's really interesting is we're now developing a platform of technologies and kind of the backend software system so that we can expand, use that ethos and approach and expand into other kind of vehicle applications. So how can we do, uh, help people do work? How can we kind of keep people and goods moving effectively? Well, we're building a platform that lets us 
have kind of that flexibility in applying um, the technologies. So it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun, you know, and, and, and frankly, if you jump on an UPCO and you, you don't smile after riding it around, uh, there's probably something else at play. Cause um, it, I'm a bit of a romanticist. Like I love two wheels, uh, or I should say a romantic around kind of two wheel travel. Like I've designed my own mountain bikes. I've loved, you know, cycling and motorcycles from being a kid. Um, there's something amazing about the experience, that visceral feeling of traveling through the air and space. And, you know, uh, the way that you perceive the world around you. And, and this is where kind of that whole idea of like more people getting on bikes um, or these sorts of vehicles making the world better. It's, it's not only the equation around sustainability and efficiency and consumption, but it's also around like the experiences. Like this is the way that people can enjoy traveling through space and time. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You make me, you make me think of, uh, you know, my wife and I went to Amsterdam and it was her first time there a couple of years ago. And she, she was just blown away at the bike culture. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and, and, and it was clear where cycling kind of sat in the hierarchy. Right. You know, and it was like, you know, from a safety perspective, you know, walking and and then cycling, et cetera, cars somewhere at the the top there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but I just kept on thinking about a place like L.A., Right. And we've clearly got a population problem. Um, We have a traffic problem. You know, there was maybe like a week during the pandemic where, you know, the air was clean um, because no one was driving. But now everybody's driving again. So the air is terrible. But I I always think, you know, at first I had this like fantasy a couple of years ago. Like, imagine if everybody just owned a Honda Fit. And I don't know why I picked that, but I think it was because it was fuel efficient it was it it fit a lot but it was it had a small footprint mm-hmm. and i thought man if everyone had this honda fit like this whole sit, sit, city would be run differently mm-hmm. like everything would be so much simpler and i know that people have their personal preferences and you know you could say the same thing about if everyone had the same size luggage imagine how efficient <laughs> airplanes could be right it's like they all just plugged into a compartment and it was like one size fits all but you know when when you talk about the the two wheeler and again i had those great experiences as a kid too um you know i, I think I, I rode around on a friend's chappy a lot that was mm-hmm. the you know kind of in my mind what I'm thinking. And it was just fun, right? It was just easy. Mm-hmm. It was fun. It, it wasn't a speed demon, but it did, we didn't care, right? And those experiences are not necessarily about who can go the fastest because to your point, that's a whole other segment, right? Per- performance, speed, that's a thing. But practical use that's fun mm-hmm. and enjoyable. And I, and I, you know, I saw the smile on your face when you were imagining yourself in that moment. And I, I, I believe we were meant to move. Mm-hmm. It's why, you know, travel is so good for people, right? It, we're, we're meant to see things. We're meant to explore. We're meant to, you know, have these experiences. And, you know, if we're building devices that, that enhance or better or enable that, I think we're doing something pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're doing it in a way that is less harmful for the planet um, and more thoughtful, I mean, that's where it's at. Right. Yeah, totally. You know, and, and not only are we, we built to move, we're, you know, destined to it, but we're also connected to the earth and the, yeah. 
the environment around us, right? And so there is something kind of funny about designing our lives around homes and vehicles and other means of conveyance where we're completely sealed off, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I understand there's actually real practical concerns around two-wheel vehicle travel for safety, um, you know, those sorts of things. But I would argue at some level those safety concerns are because of the world that we've built around cars, right? And the ability yeah. to sort of switch off your brain, not focus, um, you know, and also just sort of the power dynamic, right, of having a, a two- or three-ton vehicle against something where you weigh uh, a total of 200 kilograms, right? Um, yeah. But there's so much data out there that actually says, like, these micromobility companies or even delivery companies that are showing two-wheel vehicles, micromobility type of um, format get through the city faster than cars, right? And part of that is because of flexibility and the, you know, how you can kind of go around obstacles, but also a big part of that is packing efficiency. Could you imagine how ludicrous it would be if in order for us to fly to Europe, every individual person had to have their own airplane, right? Like you couldn't yeah. do it, right? Like the sky would be full of airplanes, people crashing all over the place, right? So why do we kind of do that same model with large vehicles, right? In a world where people are walking, cycling, using smaller format, kind of micro lightweight vehicles, whether the two or four, you just can get through that space so much more effectively um, with less safety risks, you know, higher speed or not higher speed, but actual, uh, I should say not higher velocity, but actually the speed between A and B is hot, is faster, right? Like the duration is yeah. lower. Um, because of what that unlocks, you know? And, and frankly, yeah, I, I wanna, I wanna live in a world where more people are on bikes or, you know, lightweight vehicles. Um, cause I'm an engineer and it's all about efficiency and optimization and, and it's just simply the right kind of way to cut the equation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got a guest coming on soon and, and what her company has done is, um, focused on creating like traceability across the you know for for foods um so basically they started off with a fish company and they kind of track where the fish is caught like and and everywhere it goes all these points of contact mm -hmm. you know where as it as it goes across the world to get to you at your kroger's or whatever and so that you could just sit there with a phone and scan and say okay well i can see the life of this of this uh Th this this fish that I'm yeah. going to bring home and cook, and the thing that that doesn't exist, or at least that I don't know about today, is you know when I go and charge um, my electric car and say a supercharger, it doesn't tell me where that power comes from, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's been it's been kind of the big mystery of of supercharging culture yep. is like because you do think about it like well, it, 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 is this just coming from coal? Is this, like where where does this really come from? And I think in 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 my in my grand like fantasy land, it's basically you could find out where the power came from. Yeah. So it's like, hey, this this you know this came from wind or this came from you know solar or this came from whatever, and you know X percent came from traditional, and we're trying to work that down. And yeah. I think that you know as consumers become more and more. Uh, concerned with what they're spending their money on, the sustainability, you know, things like diversity and, and product development, like they're going to want to know. 
And this is just another thing that they're going to want to know. And, you know, you guys are, are thinking about all these different devices and, and this platform. Um, and, and I wonder, like, how do other energy sources fit into the platform, if at all? Mm. That's a really good question. You know, Rob, I back to sort of the efficiency statement, right? Um, even if we keep the electric grid as it is and were to find a way to convert everyone to electric vehicles, simply the efficiency equation makes a very compelling argument to do that, right? Yeah. Um, two to three times more efficient than a, a standard internal combustion engine. And if we're sourcing electricity from these power plants that are efficient at scale, whether they're natural gas or coal or whatever, they're actually high, high, high efficiency. So the, the resulting kind of end to end efficiency of your system, the means of conveyance, sort of irrespective of the actual machine that's driving you is much higher. Right. So I think that's a, a big win. But you're totally right. Like we are becoming aware of this stuff, just the nature of the game. And what's really encouraging is that we're starting to see cost parity for alternative sources of energy for solar and wind. Now, where even five years ago, there is a pretty significant markup. So it's changing so rapidly that I think in the next decade, we're going to start to see those being the, the sources of choice. Um, for basically building a grid. And, and I think we're going to have to change the, the grid, the, the architecture of the grid to allow for, you know, sort of the consumption during certain hours for electric vehicle charging and, you know, sort of the changing yeah. demands. So there'll be investment there. But having a balance of a variety of different energy sources is going to enable us to have sort of that level loaded grid that's a little bit more distributed. Um, and then for UBCO, you know, I think right now our stance is battery electric is the way to go. It's where significant investment is happening in the technology space. It's where there's really proven technologies already existing to kind of create these um, exciting experiences that are that are above and beyond, you know, the alternative. Um, you know, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we're fixed to battery electric. You know, like longer term. Um, you know, I think our, our ability to survive, to paraphrase, uh, you know, um, a scientist that we all know is our ability to survive is directly correlated to our ability to adapt. Right. And so, um, you know, Darwin, um, so if fuel cells become the thing, right. And for whatever reason, they start to catch up on being much more promising, more available, you know, let's let's innovate around using fuel cells for this same type of application. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I think I do think right for right now, electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles are the next big sea change that we're going to see in technology over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. Colin, what, what, you know, as you're working on this product, what, what brands are inspiring you? Like, I know we all, we, we all get our inspiration from, um, all over the place. And so like, do you find yourself at times like really digging into like a specific point of inspiration to help influence how you, how you're thinking about the design here? Yeah, it's a tough question. Actually reminds me of a, a question that I ask any, um, product hires that I'm trying to make, you know, like what product inspires you or what do you think is a great product? But, um, 
so I should be able to answer this. You know, I, I think I have a multitude of sort of influences in that space, um, sort of separating the personality from the output. I think there's a lot of amazing things happening at Tesla and SpaceX. Um, it's this grand vision and finding a way to pull together um, the resources and the smarts and the passion of all of the people to really achieve that grand vision. Like the way that Tesla has really laid the path for all of us to come and, and succeed is pretty incredible. Um, and again, they're, they're not the best product in every kind of vector of, you know, the experience, but they are quite amazing what they've been able to do. Um, but on the same kind of, you know, side of things, I think, um, you know, Peloton is quite interesting. Like the way that Peloton has approached, uh, the hard and software technology, as well as the content, as well as the brand side of things to create a really compelling experience that drives people to really positive behavior. Um, and that sense of community around a product is, is quite amazing. Like I don't, as an engineer, as a product person, I don't want to live in a world where only engineering or product wins, right? Like I think the best experiences are a balance of all of the, the factors. Um, and the final little plug that I'll give is like, I'm actually really inspired by sort of the ancient kind of craftsman, you know, like Japanese form of mastery where it's actually okay to spend a lifetime refining and developing an approach and really getting it to an amazing level of um, function. You know, I think that's something that we've lost in Western cultures is this like sense of immediacy or like our impatience with, uh, you know, development where it kind of drives our consumer culture. You know, I need the new thing because things are developing so rapidly. But in a lot of cases, like, there's something noble about developing something just so good that it lasts, you know? And yeah. I think, I think we can get there. We continue to work on vehicles with that sort of mentality. Like let's, let's keep making these things kind of last forever. You know, like you said about replacing, you know, the drivetrains on these retro vintage vehicles, like there's still so much good that's in those things. You know, the, the hard components still are there to work. Like, can we keep them running? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know how many YouTube videos I've watched on just, you know, classic conversions to, <laughs> to EV, which is, and it's awesome, right? It is awesome. And I do believe that the cars become better. Yeah. You know, um, Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and, and I'm sure you've watched these, they're, they're taking like Tesla engines and throwing them in uh, motors and throwing them in all, all these old cars. And it's like, I, I want that. Mm -hmm. Like, and it, just as much as I want, like the brand new, um, yeah. with the warranty, but it's like, no, I kind of want that. Cause actually there feels like there's less that could go wrong. <laughs> totally know? true. Yeah. And you're right. The performance is, uh, far exceeding what they had back in those, <laughs> that, those eras. And, um, you know, frankly, it's also a great bit of product stewardship, like give these things a second yeah. life. Like there's still something to give, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, what did I, I don't know the exact date, but I heard, um, was it in Europe where they're, you know, it's like by 2030 or something, there's going to be, you know, basically no, no, 
um, combustion engines on the road or, or something crazy like, 20, like that. No, 2035. Like, so I think California okay. came out and led the way, which California does pretty frequently in the case of like emissions and stuff. But they came out and announced 2035, no new vehicles could be sold as um, internal combustion. And now all of Europe has matched that. Um, yeah. And so it's it's pretty amazing. You know, I think there's this this factor that's now going to come to play. Like um, Apple Apple uh, users will feel this at their core. Whenever there's rumblings about the new great thing that's coming, right? You sort of turn off your focus on what's available right now. Like what product is available? I need to wait for the next phone. Oh man, the new M1 chip's coming. I got to wait for that thing, right? Well, mm-hmm. guess what? All of these amazing new electric vehicles are coming. They're here now. They're going to get even better over the next five years. And in fact, you can't buy internal combustion soon, which means what's going to happen to all of the support and all that stuff in the next couple of decades. So what are users going to do? They're going to either hold out and buy electric for their next one, or they're just going to buy electric now because it's sort of a foregone conclusion, right? So in some ways, like not only is policy going to drive kind of direct action at that time point, but it's also deriving the forward looking behavior right now. Yeah, no, it's so true. I, I, I went off on a tangent in my head for a second there and, and wondered, like, you know, could you open up a business that did conversions for, say, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, Porsches, right? Old Porsches and get the price point down to you know, like around 5K and basically say, yeah, it's 5K, but we believe it's going to like increase the life of this of this vehicle by X, um, you know, or and, and, and so that 5K is really blah, blah, blah over the next 20 years because it's going to last 20 years more. Yeah. Um, you know, and we can just throw another motor in if we have to. You know, I, I, uh, I have a Tesla and we, we took a drive up to Portland. And while, while we were up there, the, the rear motor just died. Mm. It like it died. And, I, you know, Tesla came, they took the car to the Portland dealership and they basically just over the weekend installed a new motor. Like that was it. And, and I asked, like, was it really complicated? And they're like, well, take a day. And I just thought, man, I can't imagine having to get a new engine in a car Mm -hmm. and just the red tape you'd have to go through to do it. But you know, what they explained to me was, no, we've got, we've got like a couple, we've got a good amount of motors ready to go. And when this happens, we just drop a new one in. We don't even we don't even try to diagnose it. We'll yeah. we'll fix it later. Yeah. We just want to get you back on the road. And it was just a very different mentality, right? It was it, it it felt like tech. It felt like, you know, when you go in with I don't know, some kind of appliance and, and the goal is just to get you back to so that you can use it again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the idea of modularity is really key to serviceability. Um, and also sort of for future proofing, like one thing that Tesla does that not a lot of people realize is they'll actually kind of roll hardware updates midstream. So a lot of automakers will wait for like a new model year, right? Or even like, let's say consumer products, like, you know, they're not developing a new chipset until the next new model comes, but actually Tesla, the way that they've kind of architected the system is they'll actually roll updates sort of irrespective of what the the customer kind of knows they're getting to continue to deliver that experience at the cost point, you know, the price point and, and kind of, um, level of performance that's expected. And I think that's, that's a key piece of also product stewardship is 
being able and also sort of a lot of what's sort of um, of the moment in the conversation, political landscape around right to repair, like that's a key piece of it. Um, Being able to get in, replace something that's failed and keep your whole system running is really important. You know, actually Patagonia and, and a smaller company called Fjallraven, they're a Swedish brand. They have a really good perspective on this. They want their stuff to be repaired. In fact, Fjallraven says, we want our entire garment or backpack to all fail, all the components to fail at the exact same time. <laughs> Cause they want the experience to last, you know, the ultimate time possible. And if it doesn't, yeah. then it's repairable, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's something that Upco is really taking on as well as the ability to, uh, replace batteries and motors and other components as needed. And I think that's, that's definitely, that's, I think a trend that will continue, um, continue for certain circles. Again, we go back to the argument, there's benefits to integration. There's benefits Mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of packaging everything. So it's, uh, monolithic. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like, I think, it's a balance of those equations. And for us, it's towards, you know, repairability. Colin, what's the best way for someone to uh, find out more about Upco bikes and, and the mission and what, what you guys are doing? Yeah. So our website's uh, www.upcobikes.com. A lot of great content on there. Um, and we're actually going to be at Micromobility America, kind of an upcoming show. I think we're going to do some sessions talking about where the company's headed. Um, and then finally, you know, look us up and try to see if you could find a local dealer and get a test ride. Like, like you said, like <laughs> just thinking about it puts a smile on my face. It's so much fun. It will really change the way that you perceive kind of moving around your town or, you know, your property. And, um, it's kind of the best way to understand where things are headed is just give it a try. Yeah, that's awesome. Colin, I really appreciate you coming on and spending some time and enlightening um, myself and, and hopefully the listeners on on this future that that is 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 actually happening. And uh, and and congratulations on on helping make it happen. Um, you know, uh, hats off to you. It's 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 awesome. Um, listeners. If you like this podcast and and you really enjoy digging into consumer products and getting to know the people that make and market them, please, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We're presented by the great people at Field Test who create exceptional tools that help you get your product in front of the right customer. And you can check them out over at fieldtest.la. DTC Growth Hacking is mixed and engineered by Garrett Griebel, and it's hosted by me, Rob McGray. We release new episodes on most Tuesdays, and we strive to provide you with great conversations and insights from the best and brightest in the industry. On behalf of myself and the entire Field Test team, have an amazing week. Thank you, Colin. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. This was a Field Test podcast.